Houston, we have a problem. Everyone is burned out. Employees are burned out. Business owners are burned out. Caregivers are burned out. And wherever there are problems, the market is generally pretty quick to respond with solutions. But as we're going to talk about today, the solutions that are being promoted are not necessarily what we need in order to solve the problem of burnout. All right, all right, everyone, take your seats or lace up your sneaks. We're about to get started. Welcome to the Change Academy podcast. I'm your host, Monica Reinagel, and in this show, we talk about what it takes to create healthier mindsets and habits in our own lives, as well as how we can create healthier communities and workplaces. Whether you're working on your own health and well-being or promoting healthy behaviors is your job, we're going to talk about what works, what's hard, what's needed, and what's next. Let's jump in. We've been talking about solutions that don't fit the problem. And in the last episode, I talked about how to recognize problem-solution mismatches so that you can stop spinning your wheels and start gaining traction. Now, most of the examples I offered in that episode had to do with problems that we're often trying to tackle in our personal lives, our health habits or personal finances or intimate relationships. But today, we are going to talk about a huge problem-solution mismatch that is playing out in workplaces everywhere. Cassie Christopher returns to the podcast to talk with me about workplace burnout and the impact that this is having on both employees and employers and even the self-employed. Cassie is a registered dietitian, a keynote speaker, and a workplace wellness consultant who works with companies to identify and resolve issues relating to employee engagement and well-being. She and I meet regularly to talk about this stuff, and the conversation you'll hear today is very much like the conversations we are having on an ongoing basis. But I want to suggest a couple of different ways for you to listen to and take action on this episode. If you are an employee, I want you to particularly pay attention to the six things that employers need to provide in order for you to thrive, because this can really help you advocate more effectively for an environment that helps both you and your company succeed. If you are an employer, listen for ways in which the solutions that you've been applying to the problem of burnout may actually be making the situation worse and the strategies that would be more effective. And if you're self-employed or an entrepreneur, then you have to take responsibility for both the organizational stuff and the personal stuff. Then again, you also probably have a bit more autonomy and agency. But for everyone listening, understanding the true causes and cures for burnout is the first step. And for those who are in a position of leadership or responsibility at their workplaces and need some support applying the solutions that we're talking about today, I hope you'll reach out to me or Cassie or both of us to take this conversation deeper. But right now, here's my conversation with Cassie Christopher. Welcome back to the Change Academy, Cassie. Thanks so much for having me. It is great to have you here again. And we both recently were together in Seattle, Washington, presenting at the Healthy Worksite Summit. Um, it was a really great meeting. I so enjoyed your presentation. You actually moderated for mine, which was a bonus. We had a lot of fun. But as we heard loud and clear from really everyone we were talking to, from the HR representatives to the 
the wellness program managers to you know some of the vendors who were there talking to the same folks. What we were hearing over and over again is that the big problem in the workplace these days is burnout. So we're going to talk about that today, but let's maybe start with a definition because this isn't just a term that we're throwing around in the popular imagination. There's actually a, a definition for this. Can you set us up for it? Yeah. So burnout is chronic stress that occurs because of conditions in the workplace not being adequately managed. And burnout includes three elements, exhaustion, which generally comes first, cynicism or negative feelings about the work you're doing or the workplace you're in, and then finally reduced professional efficacy. So this might be that quiet quitting as an element of Mm. burnout. I can see why this is top of mind for businesses, because as you say, it starts with, you know, sort of a, a personal collapse, but then quickly progresses to a situation that negatively inf- affects the workplace and the whatever that workplace is supposed to be doing, it's not doing it as well anymore. So this is something that really does need to be addressed. So the folks who are in charge of workplace wellness, and these are the ones that you and I are often working the most closely with, are being tasked to fix the burnout. And, you know, because wellness programming is the tool that they have, uh, you know, they're trying to fix burnout with wellness programming. (laughs) It seems obvious. But I know that you're hearing from your contacts in human resources and talent development that employees are too burned out to engage with wellness programming. So this is a little bit of a catch-22. Wellness programming is not going to fix burnout. Indeed. I think what we see oftentimes is maybe a lunch and learn on burnout or a lunch and learn on stress management or, you know, prioritization and boundaries. And it really puts the onus to fix burnout on the individual. And that that's the problem. That is the mismatch that we can't, companies cannot put the responsibility to prevent and repair burnout squarely on the individual when they're the ones who caused the issue in the first place. Right. Yeah. They're setting up the conditions that lead to burnout. The the solution needs to start there. And I love that you called out that this is a, a mismatch, you know, because this is a theme that we've been exploring lately on the Change Academy when a solution is mismatched to the problem, you can just continue to pour more and more energy and effort into that solution and not gain any traction. It gets really frustrating really fast. We need to back up a little bit and make sure that we are choosing the right solutions for the problem. Yeah. Oftentimes how we're seeing wellness programs tackle these issues is they, you know, it can start to feel, I think, to the employee like a to-do list. Like, here's what you need Mm -hmm. to do, the tasks you need to do to earn the points. And that contributes more to someone's workload rather than, you know, giving them value, taking some workload away, making things easier. And even worse, and I'm sure you've seen this, but sometimes wellness programming might recommend things that don't feel possible. Like, we'll just set boundaries. We'll just ask your manager to prioritize. We'll just go for a walk. And if somebody feels like doing those things is going to put their job 
at risk. You know, there's not psychological safety to take care of themselves because that's not the culture. You know, then the wellness programming is uh, kind of hamstrung right, right when it starts. Well, right. Not only is it not alleviating the problem, it's actually creating a new problem, which is now I have another mandate to do something that I don't feel I actually have the capacity or the freedom to do. So I think everybody listening here is experiencing this from some perspective. You are either the burned out employee, you are the employer dealing with the consequences of burnout in your organization. Maybe you're the HR person or the wellness programming person whose job it is to fix this. So let's talk about some solutions. Let's talk about what the companies can do or need to do to change the conditions that we're working in that are leading to this burnout. What are some steps that our employers or we as employers can take to address that root cause? People have been researching this for a really long time. And Mm -hmm. one of the main researchers, her name is Christina Maslach. And what she has found is that there are six key areas that need to be attended to in order to prevent burnout. One of those is workload. And I think that's pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. If you have more work to do than you can do, and yet you're somehow expected to do all of it, that is going to lead to that exhaustion, that cynicism, that reduced professional efficacy. You know, why can't I do all this? It seems like I should be able to. The second area is control, and that is someone's feelings of agency or control over their workload, you know, their feelings of giving input. And, you know, certainly from a management perspective, this doesn't mean that someone has to have, um, you know, ultimate control or say over, over everything they do, because obviously that's just not going to work. in a a company setting. However, you know, and I think this is where survey fatigue comes up a lot. People say, oh, nobody wants to do surveys. And really the issue is nobody feels like, you know, whoever is doing the survey is actually listening to them and acting on what they say. And so even one small way to deal with control is to be really transparent. You know, this is what I heard. This is what I understand you want. You know, here's why we can't do that right now. But even that gives someone a sense of control and agency, just knowing that they've been heard. Yeah. The third is reward, and that's around recognition and being seen for their work. So not necessarily compensation. Exactly. Yeah. So reward doesn't have to be more money. Maybe it can be. And, you know, there's a lot of research that shows having a living wage or being paid fairly is is very important to this. But assuming that's already the case, this may be someone noticing that you did something and, and speaking up and, and offering recognition for that. Sure. Acknowledgement. I think we all thrive when our efforts are acknowledged, seen and acknowledged. Yeah. The, the fourth of these six key areas is community. So this is speaking to the community within your workplace, what the culture is. Um, The Surgeon General just came out with an advisory around loneliness, which I think highlights just how important this community piece is. And even in the, you know, nutrition world to nerd out for a moment, 
we've known for a very long time, ever since the Framingham Heart Study decades ago, how important community is to health, belonging, well-being. So it doesn't surprise me that it shows up in this list of areas that can lead to burnout. Yeah. I mean, we spend uh, uh, sometimes the majority of our waking life in our work environments. And so if community is a basic human need, it needs to be served in our workplaces as well. Indeed. The fifth area is fairness. And, you know, this, of course, I think with more DEIB efforts coming to the front, more of that research being, which again has been ongoing, but I think it's being um, broadcast and there's more interest in it now. We're really understanding how important that feeling of equality and fairness is to make someone feel like they belong. And then lastly, values. And this is, you know, do the values of the person match the values of the company, Mm -hmm. the values of the culture. Uh, and, and this one I think is often overlooked. Hopefully it's, it's becoming more popular, but even in hiring practices, you know, are you, um, doing things to attract people who share similar values so that they will enjoy being in that culture? And, you know, that that's important. Absolutely. So I, I hear this list of, you know, a reasonable workload, some control over how you do your work, reward and acknowledgement, a sense of community, fairness in just how things are done and an alignment of values. It sounds like a good list to me. So, you know, these are things that employers can be assessing. How are we doing on all these fronts? If we are seeing burnout or if we're seeing the the fallout of burnout, this is some concrete places that we can look to see where are we dropping the ball. But I also want to say that for employees, if we are feeling burnout, it's a way of our assessing like what is it about this environment or this situation that is not supporting me? And, and you know, to be a little bit more specific, because just complaining that you feel burned out is not terribly helpful to anyone but being able to identify which dimensions of these six things you know are are lacking whether it's the workload or whether it's the community aspect again to your point about agency you know gives you more ability to ask for what you need i love that i so appreciate that piece when you have these words and an understanding of the research you're able to better advocate for yourself And if your maybe direct manager is not a safe person to do this advocating, um, then that's time to go to HR and and talk about, you know, what you've been learning about burnout, what's going on for you uh, and, and, you know, speak up as long as it's, as long as it's safe to do so. And, And I also just want to note that for some people, they feel like speaking up is going to get them fired. Right. So, Yes, it's helpful to know this. And I also want to hold space for those who maybe hear that list, feel like they know what the issue is, and feel like there's not much that can be done for them. Yeah. And and again, that goes back to really helping employers understand why this is not just a nicety and this is not just a perk. This is a very basic requirement of staying in business and you know nurturing a workforce that can help you as a business succeed. 
All right. So this, that's what companies need to be looking at and assessing in terms of reducing the conditions that lead to burnout. Let's talk a little bit about recovery because a lot of us are well down this track already. The horse is out of the barn. The toothpaste is out of the tube. I'm sure I could pile a couple more on there, but for those who feel like I'm already burned out and I have been for some time my employer is finally starting to pay attention, starting to address some of these issues. Now, how do I recover from the damage, you know, the, the accumulated effects of long-term burnout? So what's, what's the recovery plan or the repair, as you like to call it? So repair efforts are often focused on self-care, you know, sleep, eat, move your body. And, and all of those things are important. Anyone who's read Burnout by Amelia and Emily Nagoski knows that movement is maybe the, the, the most uh, effective way to get your nervous system back to balance. Um, and yet, you know, where I'm really seeing the research come out is on the more mental health side of things. And in particular, self-compassion, you know, so compassion for yourself, compassion for others, and social connection are coming forward as some of the, the really strong pieces that you need to repair burnout. Yeah, that's a great insight. Um, and it sounds so kind of touchy-feely, wishy-washy, but this, as you say, there is neuroscience to back this up, that this is actually what begins to rebalance the nervous system and our, you know, limbic responses to our, to stimuli. So it's not just, again, it's not just a nicety. It is part of the, the medicine that the mental health piece of it, the really working on our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to others, our relationships um, is a big part of this. And I just have to mention for those of you listening who are sort of in the situation that Cassie and I are both in, where we are neither employers in the traditional sense nor employees, you know, we kind of have a double job to do, right? Because we are in charge of our own workload. Um, we certainly have more control than people who have employers, uh, but we we are the ones who set our workload. We are the ones that determine how much time and space there is for community. We're the ones that determine whether the work that we're doing is aligned with our values. So we have all of those employer responsibilities and we are individuals who also have that personal responsibility to exercise self-care and develop ourselves as individuals. So, you know, there are a lot of rewards to being self-employed and or an, an entrepreneur, but yeah, it's, it's kind of like a double helping of responsibility when it comes to addressing and preventing and repairing burnout. It, that's true. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation so far this issue of self-compassion and, you know, our ability to meet ourselves where we are and have compassion and understanding for whatever challenges we may be experiencing, whatever limitations we may be working to overcome, self-compassion. But I've also heard you make a really interesting distinction between self-compassion and self-esteem. Self-esteem is a tricky one, isn't it? It's not necessarily an unalloyed good. Yeah. We often think 
we need more self-esteem. And when I'm working with people in the nutrition world, they often tell me, you know, oh, I want to make these changes. I want more self-esteem. But in reality, self-esteem always involves your comparison to other people, that you have to be better uh, than them in your mind. And it's interesting because high self-esteem is related to a lot of other positive, you know, traits, like you feel good about yourself. Um, And low self-esteem is related to a lot of maladaptive coping mechanisms, like it's theorized that the root of binge eating in particular is is low self-esteem. And so it seems like, oh, great, let's just raise the self-esteem. But this is where Mm -hmm. self-compassion, self-acceptance come in to be so helpful because they bypass the need for self-esteem and the need for that maybe slightly narcissistic comparisonitis, <laughs> you know, to go on all the time and allow you to really truthfully evaluate what's working, what your strengths are and what's not working, you know, in a safe way so that you can see the pieces that aren't working without a threat to your ego, without a threat to your sense of identity. That's where we get that self-acceptance piece. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to problem solve, you know, the actual issue. It allows you to, to honestly see what's going on, where you need support, where you might need some help to change, you know, for your own, uh, you know, goals and where things are are working and, and things are going well. And maybe even to build on that from a strengths-based approach. So self-compassion in my book is really the way to go. It is, it's the winner, you know, between the two um, because it allows for that continual, honest appraisal of where you might need support in a way that doesn't work your nervous system up, you know, doesn't cause shame and leaves you, you know, feeling okay at the end of that problem solving session. Right, right. So I like what you said about self-esteem being driven by comparison, whether it's comparing ourselves or the results that we're getting to someone else or God help us, social media, (laughs) what we're seeing other people uh, ostensibly achieving on social media. Also occurs to me though, that that comparison can be uh, comparing ourselves against an unrealistic standard of perfection. So there doesn't even need to be another person involved for this to be counterproductive. And, and I really appreciate the, the difference between that comparison with evaluation or, you know, looking at something with less judgment attached to it, just what's working, what's not working. So it's like the non-judgmental evaluation as opposed to the comparison uh, that can lead to low self-esteem. But either way, self-esteem seems more like a product of self-care than the engine of self-care. Could be, could be, yeah. (laughs) It sounds like I didn't convince you there. Uh, Yeah, I'm just, I'm still not sure about self-esteem. There's a, a lot of good research that uh, around self compassion, and I think, I think maybe putting your eggs in that basket will uh, okay. <laughs> will be the way to to make the best omelet. <laughs> Fair enough, but you know, as we were having this conversation, I came across a passage in uh, by Stephen Hayes in his book on ACT, which stands for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And he was talking about self-esteem. And so, of course, it jumped right out at me because we had just been talking about it. And I want to just read this couple sentences that he writes about it. 
He says, research shows that when people focus on building, protecting, and maintaining self-esteem, they can become less able to focus on what they really value. They're more likely to feel pressured, stressed, and anxious, and to be less resilient when facing challenges. That is kind of a surprising assessment or evaluation of how self-esteem works. But I think he's talking about uh, what's what's referred to as contingent self-esteem. And that's the self-esteem that's grounded in some sort of external signs of achievement, like your grades for students, or maybe sports performance, or maybe weight loss, whatever it is. These external markers of achievement are the foundation for that self-esteem. That's contingent self-esteem. Or I feel like there's another flavor of self-esteem that's really a kind of mask that we put on, uh, you know, as a, you know, in, in the sense of self-confidence may not actually be what we're feeling authentically, but we feel like that's what we want to present to the world. So our self-esteem is this kind of character that we're playing. Interestingly, though, the things that foster true self-esteem, which I think is probably what you're gesturing to, include things like autonomy, right? Control, agency, and self-efficacy. And that self-efficacy piece is something that I talk, when I'm working with companies on this, I talk about it as the belief that we have the ability to create positive change and that we're actually worth that effort. And so any behavior change project, whether it's you working on your own behavior or whether it's you working with others, has to be grounded in that self-efficacy, the belief that we have the ability to do it and that we're worth putting in that effort. It's so, so important. That worthiness piece, I think, gets lost or missed uh, oftentimes when we're talking about behavior change. And, you know, in this case, when you're thinking about what can you do to repair your burnout or how can you support people Mm -hmm. who are burnt out or how can you make your workplace a place where burnout doesn't occur, making sure that that underlying belief that people are worth the effort yeah, and um, helping equip people with self-efficacy and self-compassion and okay, fine, (laughs) (laughs) self-esteem. Those, you know, that I really believe that is the way forward. And that's how we can get these workforces that are burnout proof and these companies that are more profitable as a result. Yeah. And we all have our part to play here. And as with any problem, understanding the problem is the first step because then we can actually match our solutions to the problem that we're actually trying to solve. So I really appreciate Cassie, you stopping by to share your knowledge of the research, your experience in working with organizations on these problems with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. And to find out more about the work that Cassie does with organizations, helping them tackle burnout and employee engagement, the best place I can suggest for you to connect with her is on LinkedIn because I follow her on LinkedIn and she is constantly sharing resources and research, starting interesting conversations. Um, So go find her on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn as long as you're there. Uh, because that we are talking a lot about this from that organizational level on that platform. 
and would love to know what your takeaways from this episode were. And I look forward to hearing that from you. But for now, thanks, Cassie. I hope you'll be back soon. Yes, please. I hope this conversation sparked some ideas or some questions that you are moved to pursue further, whether on your own or in your workplace. And in the show notes, you will find links to some of the resources that we mentioned today and ways to get in touch with Cassie. And if you'd like to talk more with me about how I help support well-being in the workplace, drop me an email at hello at changeacademypodcast.com and let's set up some time to talk. I look forward to our next conversation where we're going to turn our focus back toward how we can create the mindset and motivation that allow us to reach those goals that are most important to us. I hope you'll join me. All right. Thanks, everyone. This has been the Change Academy podcast with Monica Reinagel. Our show is produced by me, Brock Armstrong. You'll find links to everything Monica mentioned in today's episode in our show notes, as well as on our website at changeacademypodcast.com, where you can also send us an email or leave us a voicemail. If you're finding this podcast helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or even better, give our show a rating or review in your favorite podcast app. Or, best of all, share this episode with a friend or colleague you think would enjoy it. Now here's to the changes we choose.